Hi, I'm Ellen Pompeo, and this is Tell Me. Today, my guest is Maria Konnikova. She wrote a book called The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win. So Maria set about on a quest to learn how to play poker so she could learn about, you know, decision-making and choices and things like that. I think she's really smart. It's a great book. I'm excited to speak to her. So I hope you all enjoy our conversation. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Maria Konnikova, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to talk to you. I'm obsessed with this book, The Biggest Bluff. It's so good. And congratulations. It seemed like a lot of fun. Thank you. Except for the ending, which I'm not going to give away. <laughs> Everyone has to get the book and read it because it's juicy. There's some drama at the end. We actually have something in common. So you grew up outside of Boston also. Oh, I did not know that you're from outside of Boston. Yeah, I grew up in Acton, Massachusetts, which is one of the northwest suburbs of Boston. Right. Well, after like five minutes, you'll get it because you'll hear my accent. You'll be like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I grew up in a town called Everett. Ah, I know Everett. Yeah. So your family came from Russia when you were four. Mm -hmm. And I'm not familiar with Acton per se, but Boston certainly is a very interesting place to grow up. A lot of, in my neighborhood, very Irish-Italian immigrant, very working class. What was that like? I mean, you were four, but as you grew up, how did that sort of... Yeah, you know, it was a really jarring experience at first because I came when I was four and I didn't speak any English, zero. And then I went to kindergarten and had this experience of being around all non-immigrant children, basically. Or as you say, you know, I'm sure that there were lots of people who were immigrants once upon a time, but certainly not by that point. And having the experience of just not being understood and not being able to communicate at all and just feeling completely out of place in a very profound way. I mean, I actually, I still remember my first day of kindergarten because it was traumatic in a lot of ways. I was in the wrong classroom is the punchline, and I had no idea and had no way of telling anyone that I was in the wrong place. But it was one of these things where you go through different phases. I was little enough that I quickly picked up English. You know, kids are sponges. They pick up languages so rapidly, and that's so lucky such an adaptive thing. And I went through a pretty long phase where I just wanted to Americanize myself as much as possible so that I could fit in, so that I could be kind of part of this 
community of whatever it was in the suburbs of Boston and not be Russian. And so I really did my best to blend in however I could. I even had people, instead of calling me Maria, I had them. So my Russian nickname is Masha. But I decided I was going to be Marsha and that Marsha was going to be a much more right name for the area. So for all elementary school, I was Marsha instead of Maria. And then I came to my senses and started adopting more of my actual identity and becoming comfortable with who I was. But there was definitely this whole period of my life where I just wanted to be like everyone else. And I wasn't, obviously. So that was not the easiest thing in the world always. So you say a couple things that really stick out to me. In the book, The Biggest Bluff, I'll just break it down very quickly and then we'll get into it more for people listening. So Maria is a psychologist who went to Columbia and Harvard. She learned how to play poker as a way of studying behavior, which I found really fascinating because... I think actors really like to learn how to do things, right? Like, I've played a doctor for 150 years, and I love— <laughs> You look amazing for your age. Thank you so much. I love watching surgeries on YouTube. You know, people think they're gory, but they obviously look nothing like they do on television. And I love watching surgical procedures and watching how they're done. It really helps me memorize the medical terminology and dialogue and helps me understand the steps that you really have to take to do the surgery. It just gets you right into it. So you went on this journey to learn how to play poker so you could study behavior. And like you, I've heard some other appearances you made on podcast. I'm a terrible card player. Like I love playing cards, but I'm not good at it at all. And so bravo to you for like diving in, knowing that mathematics is like not your strong suit. So you talk a lot about chance versus luck. I read this great book a long time ago by a woman named Winifred Gallagher called Just the Way You Are. I don't know if you're familiar with that book, but it talks about nature versus nurture mm-hmm. and how much of our personalities are DNA and how much is our environment. And the same could be said for chance and or luck. People often say, well, I'm not lucky, I work hard. And my answer to that is, yes, of course, people work hard. But there's more that goes into it. I mean, I'm sure just recently, you know, the women of Afghanistan are in the news. And I'm sure the women in Afghanistan would also love to be able to work hard. But by the sheer nature of the fact of their geographical location, they're unable to put that work ethic into practice because they don't have the luck of having been born in the United States. So I will bring that back around to say, you said something just now that we should touch on, which is in kindergarten, you were in the wrong classroom. But were you? Because that experience has stuck with you. It clearly shaped your psyche. So were you in the wrong place? Or was that precisely something meant to be? What a question, Ellen. (laughs) (laughs) But first of all, I'm so glad that you just from the get-go brought this up because so many people forget how lucky the accident of birth is, right? First of all, we're born. And that's already insanely lucky. But secondly, your genes, where you're born, to whom you're born, the exact timing, everything, that has nothing to do with you. That has nothing to do with how hard you work or, you know, what you think you deserve or all of these different things. And there are so many people. I mean, I think about this 
after going through the experience of The Biggest Bluff, I think about it almost every day. There's so many people out there who are probably much more talented than I am, who have worked their asses off, and we have no idea who they are because they just got unlucky. They're in the wrong country. They're in the wrong neighborhood. They had the wrong thing happen to them. And it's through absolutely no fault of their own. And on the other hand, the fact that I'm here, yeah, I worked hard, but I also got insanely lucky. I mean, the fact that I was in that kindergarten classroom, that was pure luck in the sense that my parents decided to leave the Soviet Union. They made this incredibly risky, dangerous decision. No one knew what was on the other side. This was back when it was the Soviet Union. It wasn't Russia. The Iron Curtain had not fallen. The Berlin Wall was still <laughs> was still up. No one knew how long communism was going to last. They were stateless. We did not have citizenship after we left, and we got asylum in the U.S., and the fact that I was able to grow up here and have these opportunities, had they not left, I'd have a different life. We wouldn't be having this conversation. None of this would be happening. And that's not me. That was someone else's decision. So for me, that's just luck. For them, obviously, that was them making a very important decision. But it's funny, I've never thought of that kindergarten classroom in that exact way. But you're absolutely right, because it has shaped me. And I still remember that feeling of just absolute helplessness and frustration at not being able to communicate at not being understood, at knowing who I am and not being able to tell other people because it was this very disconcerting thing where everyone had name tags in this classroom. And the only thing I knew in English was how to write Maria because I'd learned it and practiced it at home so that I'd be able to write my name. And there was one name tag left and it definitely didn't say Maria. I don't know what it said. And the teacher tried to put it on me and I kept trying to take it off and she would put it back on and I would try to take it off. And then I just burst out crying because I couldn't say that's not me. And that's when they figured out that I was in the wrong classroom and that really wasn't me. But it was this sort of, you know, five-year-old identity crisis. And I can't help but think that it has a lot of the seeds of why I ended up studying psychology and becoming a writer and becoming someone who wants to communicate and who actually makes that my life's work. Exactly. I mean, I think some people could call it coincidence. I think the same about, you know, my life. So, when I was four years old, my mother died. And of course, I wish my mother was still alive and didn't die. But I often wonder when we talk about fate or chance or destiny or luck, had I not had this incredibly traumatic event happen in my life at such a formative age, would I have the emotional well and depth of emotion and feeling and empathy that I have and have been able to monetize and make a career out of? Would I be the actor that I am? And would I have that same emotional well had I not suffered the trauma that I suffered? Or is that DNA? So if we're talking about chance versus luck, you have a podcast called Grift that is fantastic. My other favorite topic is con artists. And I'm sure when you went on this journey to learn how to play poker, you met a lot of characters. <laughs> And some of the greatest scenes in movies ever, like the James Bond movies, Rounders, like there's so many amazing scenes that take place around a poker table. What's the difference between con artists 
and poker players? That's a very valid question, and I think there is a big difference, even though there are con artists who are poker players, just like there are con artists in every single profession. I'm sure there are some con artist actors. We've actually heard of some of them, right? Absolutely, and that's actually another great point, is like con artists definitely take the shape and form of many different things. Exactly. Cute guys, the perfect fiancé. Mm-hmm. We should talk about that for women because my audience <laughs> is predominantly female, right? And everybody wants to meet Mr. Right. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. On your podcast, Grift, you speak about, you know, women who've had these experiences with who seems to be Mr. Right. Let's talk about that. Let's break this down for women so they can look for signs and know what's sketchy and what isn't. Because what's incredible is now you can just Google everybody. You meet someone, you can find out so much about them. So how do we tell who's a good guy and who isn't? Yeah, it can be really, really difficult. And that's why I made that point where there's a big difference between poker players and con artists, but there are con artists who are in every single walk of life. And by the way, to answer your first question, the poker players, you know that you're deceiving, right? It's a game and deception is part of the rules. So you go in and you're playing by the rules. Con artists don't play by the rules. They go on a dating site or, you know, into a coffee shop or wherever it is that they're going to be meeting their prospective date. And they also bluff. They also lie. But they're breaking the rules. They pretend to be someone they're not. They have malicious, selfish intentions, and they take advantage of other people's trust, of other people's confidence in them to get something that they want, whether it's money or affirmation or just power and a feeling of control over people. But they are breaking the rules of the dating game. They're lying. They're misrepresenting. And they are being, in that sense, kind of predatory characters. And I think that's true of con artists in any walk of life. But there should be a, a special place in hell for the ones who take advantage of people's hearts, people's emotions, who take advantage of love, you know, the most basic vulnerabilities we have. The story that I talked about on The Grift, which was about a woman whom I've actually known for many years, who ended up meeting someone on a dating site. He was seemingly perfect, and he ended up taking over her life, and he was not who he said he was. He was a con artist, and they almost got married. And that just scares me so much. And there were red flags. But I think the thing that I try to stress over and over and over when we're dealing with con artists is that the red flags are only apparent from the outside, from the vantage point of someone who's not involved in the relationship, who's not involved in the situation. If you're the one who's fallen, if you're the one in that emotional relationship, you don't see them. You dismiss them. You say, oh, this isn't a red flag. This is actually something that proves that this person loves me, that this person is not a con artist. And how many times have you actually had a friend date someone who's not a con artist per se, but someone you don't approve of for one reason or another, and you try to say something 
And what does your friend say? Does your friend say, oh, Ellen, that's really thoughtful of you. Thank you so much for letting me know. I'm really going to take this into consideration. Or are they going to say, you know what? You don't know what you're talking about. He's a great guy. You're not in this relationship. And I don't want to hear it. What's the most <laughs> What's the most common reaction? Maybe you and I have different friends, but in my case, the most common reaction is, you know, Maria, get out. This is not your life. And you have no business telling me how to live mine. And you're a psychologist. Yes. <laughs> I try my best. You read people's behavior for a living. So what is that? Is that serotonin? Is that oxytocin sort of clouding your brain and the hormonal rush of good feeling chemicals are telling you that everything about this person is right and good, the way they smell or whatever physiological rush your body experiences being around that person's pheromones is clouding your judgment to something that other people can see clearly and they don't have that same clouding of yeah. their physiology <laughs> so they can see things more clearly. Yeah, I think it's a combination of physiology and psychology. So absolutely, when we're talking about a romantic relationship, there is physiology logical stuff going on there. There's so much, you know, when we talk about chemistry, that's true. There is chemistry. There are all these things happening when, you know, you meet someone and you feel like you're compatible on that level. And it's also psychological where, you know, you feel like I've been waiting for this for so long. I deserve this. This is not too good to be true. This is exactly what I deserve. <laughs> this is right for me. Someone from the side can be like, hey, can this guy really be a surgeon and great humanitarian and someone who is also a plumber in his spare time and this and that and also saving the world and all of these different things? That seems a little too good to be true. And you say, well, no, it's not too good to be true. This is the man I've always been looking for. And so there's also that psychological rationalization level where you want to believe it. And when we want to believe something, it's just so much easier to convince us. And we don't want to hear anything to the contrary. It's very easy when we don't want to believe something. We are very quick to find contrary evidence. But when this is something that we've been waiting for, this is something that we feel like we deserve, this is the story that we already believe in on some deep emotional level. We, I mean, it's an understatement to say we become much less rational, but <laughs> we, we have all of these blinders and biases where we only see what we want to see. And it goes on a very deep psychological level where I can show you evidence that this person isn't who he says he is, that this person is lying to you and you're going to dismiss it. You're going to wave it away. You're going to give me explanations for it and you'll be in total denial. And it's something where from the outside, it's very easy and tempting to rush to judge and to say, how can you be so stupid? Just get out of this. But it's not so easy on the inside. And by the way, I'm talking from experience as well. I dated a psychopath at some point in my, uh, in my past and had to have intervention where I actually had my family come and like physically move me out of an apartment, even though I uh, was crying and protesting and saying that they hated me. But luckily, I had a lot of people in my life who loved me. Really? Yeah. So this is something that I've gone through myself. This was a very early 
young 21-year-old version of me, but yes. It makes me think of Malcolm Gladwell. His latest book, I think, is called Talking to Strangers, which it's a great book. And it talks about that very thing of how is everybody can sort of look at this person and say one of two things. Either this person is clearly a maniac. Why don't you see it? Everybody sees it. Or this person is clearly a maniac and nobody sees it. And why is that? You know, I mean, we've dealt with that so much in politics. It's like somehow doctors who are suffering, fighting, crying, doing everything to keep people alive, going on social media, telling us how serious this pandemic is, how tired they are, how scared they are, how completely fried they are. And yet there's still people out there that just want to deny, deny, deny in the face of it, despite seeing so much evidence, despite hearing evidence, feeling evidence, knowing people who have passed away or are suffering. They're just those people determined to believe what they want to believe. So then if someone is just so hell-bent, despite all rationale, then what's that? Is that DNA? (laughs) Is that conditioning? Because speaking about the book Talking to Strangers and how someone looks, right, it can be the flip side of like we look at someone and we automatically, the same way as in poker, you look at someone and you think you've got their number. You think you know exactly who they are and you talk about this in the book a lot. There's another woman at the poker table and you automatically think, despite knowing it's a game of deception, you think there's going to be a bond there, right? And because she's a woman, you think you're going to have this sort of kinship. But people just make judgments based either way on if he's handsome, he's a good guy. Mm -hmm. If he's not, he's not a good guy. It's just such a poignant thing because the truth is, is our society is the way it is. Racism exists because we make snap judgments. We see the color of someone's skin. We see the texture of someone's hair or, you know, whether it's experiences we've had or things that we've been exposed to that have shaped why we think these things. We make snap judgments. We see someone and we instantly think we know who that person is. And that's what we should all fight against all the time. And that's what I tell my kids anyway. We never judge a book by its cover. As you can tell by my cover of The Biggest Bluff, I, I spilt my water bottle. I actually love this. This is a little, I'm going off the rails here, but I love my books to be lived in and have a story. And I love all the watermarks and the ink running on my book. And and I'm just like, that is a lived-in book. Yeah. That is a book that I stayed with. It stayed with me. I have a relationship to it. Yeah. And it has its marks and its scars and its bent pages. And it's still beautiful. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I really do because, you know, the saddest thing is when you see a library in someone's house and you realize that none of the books have been read, that it's just kind of decoration that someone had told them that it was a good interior design choice to have these specific books there. Or they've done it and you pick one up and you realize the pages are still uncut and still, you know, stuck together. And to me, it's so much more wonderful to see books like that, you know, books that have a history. And I actually, I have both. So I have the books that I, you know, read and reread and I write in the margins and, you know, I I do what I will to them. And then my favorites, I actually have a second copy, which is usually a hard cover copy, which I have to do what your daughter says and to have it as kind of this beautiful thing. And I have some first editions as well that I actually would never read in a normal kind of setting. But to me, they have emotional significance. And the red books have emotional significance. And I love both of those things. So thank you. 
Yeah. So it's like we always have to maintain this dance of meeting someone, making sort of a quick assessment to protect ourselves. Are they safe? Are they unsafe? Right. And then there's people who have a very strong sense. You probably have some really great adjective, (laughs) some psychological (laughs) adjective for this, which I don't have. I'm very energetically aware. I just immediately feel an energy. I'll never forget, there was this woman that worked on our show. She was a PA. And her behavior, there was something about her that just didn't feel right. And I couldn't put my finger on it. And if I would say something negative about her, all the other women on the show would be like, oh, you're crazy. She's the nicest person. Oh, she gave me this gift and she gave me this gift. And I'm like, oh, wait, she gave you gifts? (laughs) She gave you gifts. So you just met her. Why is she giving you gifts? And she had been telling these stories and saying that she knew people and... And I thought, okay, maybe I'm being too harsh. Maybe I'm judging another woman. But there's something about this that doesn't seem right. And even if they were trying to say that I was mean, I wasn't giving this girl a chance. I was judging her. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, I went to dinner with someone who this woman had said she was very, very close to. And I happened to sit next to this person at a dinner. And I said, oh, I know so-and-so. She works on our show. And the person was like, who? And I said, you know so-and-so. And she was like, no, I don't know so-and-so. And I was like, what? You don't know so-and-so? You're not practically related? <laughs> and she was like, uh, nope. And I was like, well, let me show you a picture because maybe she calls herself something different. And I pulled out a picture and she was like, no, actually, I've never seen that person in my life. And I was like, oh. And then I told the story to the women that I work with. And I said, so I sat next to so-and-so at dinner last night and she said she's never seen this person in her life. And this woman said she, like, lived beside her. They grew up together. Like, this whole story that she tells. And they dismissed me. And they were like, oh, yeah, no. They just rolled their eyes. And I was like, okay, but really, am I a horrible bitch or am I just a smart bitch? You're a smart bitch. There was something not right about it. But it's like, at that point, they had already dug their heels in and committed Mm -hmm. to defending her and committed that I was the mean one. They wanted to find something to judge me for. And it didn't matter what evidence. It didn't matter if she had stabbed someone in the parking lot. They were still going to side against me because that's the trip they were on. And that's what I feel like, whether it's anti-vaxxers or people who don't believe coronavirus, they've already dug their heels in. They've already made too much of a case for, I don't know, there's chips in the vaccines or whatever they think there is. Meanwhile, they're all saying that with their iPhones in their hands, which is the biggest chip that's ever been invented. So I don't know how a vaccine could be worse than an iPhone. But anyway... They've just dug their heels in. So now they almost can't go back. Yeah, I think that the points you're making are just spot on. And one of the things that I learned in my time with con artists and their victims is that there comes a point where you buy into a con where basically nothing will convince you and you double down. And when someone presents evidence to the contrary, so when you showed them this evidence of the dinner party and said, hey, you know what? This is a flagrant lie and it's a big one. And shouldn't this prove my point? What ends up happening in those moments is they then double down. That's kind of what makes them even more committed. And they dismiss it and they say, no, this is fake news. 
This is fake evidence. This is not actually what's happening. We're going to continue doing this. And I mean, this is something where the stakes are so low. Some random PA on your show, right? Right, because you challenge their ego. Like, you all subscribe to her stories, so they're going to sort of see that as me calling them stupid. Yes. Me thinking that I'm smarter than everybody because I was able to see that there was something shady about her. So that's where they double down. And I guess it would be the same around a poker table. I love the part when you talk about you were so convinced that you need to hang on to your money <laughs> that you were playing super safe. Yes. Because it was more important to you to hang on to your money than to take big risks and lose it. That's absolutely right. And I do think, you know, just coming full circle that there is this kind of psychological defense mechanism almost that kicks in when you feel like your identity is threatened, your sense of self is threatened. And it can be something as small as, I think this is a good person, you think this is a bad person. But now think about it on a level like vaccinations, where it's actually something that has become a major part of how you identify, how you self-identify, how you present yourself to others. So there's also this added layer of social pressure there. And so the doubling down is a million times worse and almost no evidence is going to change your mind. That's not true across the board. You know, you can get through to some people, but it is a very prevalent phenomenon. And you know what is not going to help is when people start attacking you and yelling at you, that's going to make you just become even more adamant and even more entrenched in your position. But sometimes even approaching from a position of kindness isn't going to help. And obviously in this particular case, the stakes are so much higher. But yes, you even see it on a much smaller level at the poker table when you have situations where our instinct for self-protection and for you know sometimes acting irrationally, but in a way that protects our fragile egos and our kind of fragile sense of self is really, really strong. And it's something that I think is really important to always have in mind because there are people who are able to change their minds and who are able to change their strategies and to figure out when they've been playing incorrectly. That exists. Even in the anti-vax camp, there are people who have changed their minds, but that takes an effort. The natural way, the path of least resistance way is to just double down and to keep believing what you believe and to just keep discounting the evidence. And whenever something new is presented, you just dismiss it by saying, oh, she's a bitch oh, that's fake news. Oh, this data has been corrupted. Oh, this doctor is a shill for big pharma, whatever it is that you're going to be saying. It's interesting because, you know, when you see someone who, by all other accounts, is a relatively intelligent person, mm -hmm. there's, of course, different types of intelligences. And so, in my opinion, I think one of the greatest indicators of high emotional intelligence is adaptability. At the beginning of the pandemic, a friend of mine was doing these great sort of lunchtime Zooms and inviting lots of great people to come and speak. And an economist came on and spoke and he said, the key to this pandemic will be our ability to adapt, to stick and move, to bob and weave, whatever it is we need to do to just keep it moving and keep adjusting and keep adapting. And I really think that's one of the smartest things I've ever heard because it really applies to life. It's like something is not going to go your way. Okay, this isn't Prince Charming. Everybody is telling you he's not Prince Charming. You think he's Prince Charming. Maybe take it into consideration what they're saying and come up with another plan. 
Just be adaptable. Be able to stick and move. Be able to bob and weave. Be able to get up out of that situation and move into another one. Okay, this job isn't working for you, move. This isn't working for you, move. That's not to say, you know, you make impulsive decisions without thinking through what you should do next. You should think through what you're going to do next. But really, to have a significant level of intelligence that will impact the outcome of your life, if we circle back to chance versus luck, it's not all chance and luck. It's being able to be adaptive and seeing a situation and saying, this is my time to make a move. Mm-hmm. Where do I move to? So it's, I have this opportunity to go do this thing. I want to take it. But first, how do I get out of this to go to that? It's a combination of chance and luck, but also having the ability to keep it moving in a way that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And I think that what you just said raises a really important point that a lot of things, it's not just chance luck and it's not just skill. Just like it's not just nature and it's not just nurture, there's a combination and the two come together to kind of create what ends up happening with your life. And so, yeah, some people, as we were talking about early on in the conversation, never get those opportunities, right? Because they were born in the wrong place, wrong time, whatever it is. But then there are the people who see the same opportunity, but don't see it and don't react to it in the same way. Exactly. And then this is the other thing that I've noticed growing up in Boston. Mm -hmm. There are innately optimistic people Mm -hmm. and innately pessimistic people. (laughs) I consider my environment, the way I grew up, to be extremely negative and pessimistic. Now, maybe that's because my mother died and everybody in my house was incredibly sad. You know, forever. We're all still sad, obviously. We'll always be sad. But my father was a pessimist. He would say to me almost on a daily basis, he called me Chicky. Chicky, life isn't fair. And I know he felt that way because my mother died. And I grew up feeling that way. Say it to my kid, which I prefaced it by saying, I can't believe I'm saying this to you. But the truth is, is life isn't fair. Yeah. But I've noticed that I've now lived longer outside of that than I lived in it, right? I left Boston when I was 19 or 20 years old. And I noticed that successful people have a tendency to be very optimistic. Even con artists, they're so optimistic, they believe something can happen and they can get really far down the line because they believe it. So optimism and pessimism and your natural inclination weighs a lot on on your decisions and how your life turns out and how your life plays out. Because if you think of things as, well, this is the only guy I'll ever meet. And he's got all these other characteristics. So who cares if he doesn't make me feel safe or loved or any of those things? Because he checks all of these other boxes and I'll probably never find another person like him. So if your nature is to be pessimistic and think you'll never find another great guy, of course you're not going to meet another great guy. But if you're like, you know what? I know he checks so many boxes. My friends hate him. There's plenty of other fish out there in the sea. I'm going to go get one. I got him. I can go get someone else just by being an optimist. Now, there's optimism that could get you in trouble. But I think innately how we see the world, glass half full or glass half empty, also affects our decision-making and the outcomes of our experience. Oh, absolutely. And it's something that I talk about in The Biggest Bluff as well in terms of how we frame the environment. I mean, our mental frame of, am I the victim or am I the victor? (laughs) 
Am I <laughs> the one who is making things happen or are things happening to me? And there's a psychological concept called the locus of control, which I think actually goes directly to your point. It's not exactly optimism, pessimism, but it's about where control over your life resides. And people with an internal locus are people who think that they can do things, that they are in control of things, that they can make things happen. And people with an external locus are the people who always have someone else to blame or something else to blame. You know, this didn't go well because, you know, I'm so unlucky. And, you know, the weather was bad and this happened and this happened. And I think that these things and kind of this mental attitude of optimism and pessimism, they go hand in hand and they end up affecting not just how we see the world, but then how the world ends up seeing us and what we end up getting in return. Because, you know, imagine if you have two different friends and both of them have lost their jobs. One of them is saying, yeah, you know what, I lost my job, but, you know, I'm going to be studying and working and looking for opportunities. And every time you see them, they're telling you what they're doing and what they're trying to do. And the other person is saying, oh, my boss was an idiot and, you know, fuck that guy and I can't believe that they fired me and they don't appreciate me. And every time you see them, that's all they're doing is wallowing and just talking your ear off about how this is horrible and how unfair it all is. Which friend are you going to think about when you see a new opportunity? Probably the friend who is, you know, I'm ready, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And the other one might not even be your friend for much longer because that negativity is going to start to weigh you down. So the more positive person, the one who's framing it in a different way as, yeah, this happened, but what do I do next? I can't change the past, but I can change the present. I can change the future. They're actually going to get more opportunities. They're going to get more chances to get lucky because they're putting themselves in that position. And, you know, one of the things that I actually loved learning when I was studying psychology is that this optimism and pessimism actually has physiological effects that people who are optimistic literally see more of the world. So when you're depressed and when you're in a more negative mental state, your vision narrows. You actually miss things. You, you literally don't see and don't take in as much of the world. That's just mind-boggling to me that there's such a close connection between the mental way that you're experiencing the world and what your eyes are taking in and the information that your brain is getting. And so there's this constant feedback there that I think speaks to the heart of what we're talking about, about how, yeah, of course luck matters. Of course it does. But then there are things that you can do to put yourself in situations to get lucky more often. And you learn that in poker too, because in poker, you very quickly learn that there's a big difference between doing the right thing, making a good decision and winning. You can do the right thing and lose because the outcome is not the same thing as a decision process. And what you're trying to do is just make the best decision possible and put yourself in a situation to get lucky. And so if you keep doing that, though, if you keep putting yourself in the situation to get lucky, over time, you'll get lucky. Over time, you'll make money as a poker player. And in life, if you're not playing poker, still, you're playing the poker of life. If you keep putting yourself in a situation to get lucky, it might not work out this time because statistics, variance, luck. But eventually, over time, it will. And over time, if you keep making the right decisions and putting yourself in that scenario, it will work out. And I think that that's something that's really important to remember. I think so, too. I think that's fantastic. I love that. So I think that you can teach people techniques to reframe events instead of 
thinking about it as, you know, it's happening to me. How do I reframe this? How do I change the perspective so that I am making decisions so that I can actually make it happen? I use the example in The Biggest Bluff of the poker table where, you know, your card dead, you keep getting bad hands and you can say, oh my God, I can't believe this. You know, I'm card dead. This is terrible. Or you can say, okay, this is great. I don't actually have to play that many hands so I can use this time to really observe and learn everything about everyone at the table. This is a huge opportunity because I'm not focused on this other thing. I can focus on everything else. And so when I get good cards or when I get cards that I can play, I can understand the table dynamics and the players so much better that I'm going to play much better. And I might even figure out who's playing so poorly that I can play any two cards, that it doesn't matter if I'm card dead. They don't know I'm card dead. I can play, you know, my horrible hand and take advantage of this because I've been so observant. Same exact situation, two completely different ways of approaching it. One, you're the victim, you're getting horrible hands. The other one, you're actually in control and saying, okay, this is an opportunity. The world is not fair and that's okay. So what are you going to do about it? right? You're not going to just sit there and say it's so unfair. And this is something, it's so funny that you say that to your daughter, because my mom said that to me, still says it to me all the time, that I never want to hear the word fair or unfair from you, because it's not really something that really existed in in Russia, because, you know, everything there was (laughs) so screwed up and deeply unfair that, you know, that's not really, social justice was not a thing. But when we came to the United States, my sister and I were in an American school, and we would pick up this language of, oh, this is so unfair. And the first time, I remember the first time she heard it, she said, you know, get that word out of your vocabulary. You should not be thinking that way, because what does that accomplish? You know, saying it's unfair doesn't accomplish anything. So you focus on what you can control. Focus on being the best version of you. And it's still, it was a message that took a really, really long time to sink in because it's hard. I remember my freshman year of college, I took this intensive Italian class and you had to be a fluent speaker of another romance language to take it because it was very accelerated. And so there were people there, you know, who spoke Spanish and who spoke French. And I was in that class and there was a guy in there who spoke Italian because he'd had opera training. So he'd gone to Juilliard before deciding on a traditional education as well. And so he had perfect pronunciation and all of these things. And I remember telling my mom, it's so unfair. He shouldn't be allowed to be in that class. This was my freshman year of college. (laughs) This was me, you know, in a much more grown up. And she just told me, oh my, I can't believe you're still saying that. Just knock that out of your head. Just work hard. And why do you care how good he is? Why do you care that he shouldn't be in this class because he already knows Italian? Forget it. You should not be thinking that way. That is not accomplishing anything. That is in no way a positive way of thinking. That is in no way a thought process that's going to improve you or make your life better in any way. Just don't care. It's not important. It's not something that affects you. And it was a wake-up call because that was already college and I already felt so grown up. You know, I, here I am in college and I'm still making these, these sorts of mistakes. But she was absolutely right. How do you focus on doing something, getting something out of it? What can you do? Let go of the things that you can't control. It does not matter. And also let go of other people. You shouldn't be competing against other people. That's kind of the, the other element in this uh, Italian class situation. I'm a very competitive person, but there's a difference between being 
being competitive versus trying to constantly look at other people who've accomplished more and say, see, I'm falling behind. That's just such a pointless and bad way of thinking. Yeah, it's just not productive. No, not at all. When you're thinking about life is unfair, inevitably you're coming up with that statement because you think someone else is getting something that you're not. And so life is being unfair to you, which is something that I think all young people now deal with, especially with social media. We're seeing super unrealistic expectations set on what people look like or what people's vacations are like or how much fun people are having at their job that is setting unrealistic expectations and making everybody feel bad, which is really unhealthy. Jonah Hill did an interview in GQ. Oh, I read that. Did you read that too? I did, yeah. Where he said social media is like the cigarettes of our day. It's like a super unhealthy. That was such a great observation. We're all doing it. We're all partaking in our moments of boost our ego, but it really isn't good for us. So it's careful to just know that comparison and an attitude of the world is unfair to me go hand in hand. It, the negativity perpetuates more negativity. So we got to stare off our chips <laughs> and uh, try to do this, try to have conversations with each other yeah. and tell stories and listen to stories and learn from real experiences, which is part of the reason why I wanted to do that, to just try to bring our focus back to one another and the human connection, a real human connection. Yeah. Maria, this was so much fun to talk to you. I really appreciate you giving me your time. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. Such a wonderful conversation with so many great insights. And I still think I haven't given up. You have inspired me to learn how to play poker, to learn something new. So thank you for that. And I love your podcast, The Grift, and your latest book, The Biggest Bluff. There's some good stories in here. So I hope people check out the work that you've put out there and have a great weekend. And you as well. Thank you so much for having me, Ellen. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Maria. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.